So um, <clears throat> you're probably very used to me reading like every verse, and I'm just not even going to do that in the book of Numbers. There's a whole bunch of this that just records names and individuals and tribes that don't have, I'll touch on the, some of the names and their significance, but a lot of it uh, we're going to forget almost immediately. And there are themes within it that are very significant for us to look at. <clears throat> the first theme before we begin is we're going to see the numberings that are put forth here. And this is the first of two censuses that are taken. Now, if you're familiar with the study of the scripture, God actually forbids the nation of Israel from doing this later. Tells David, under no circumstances are they to number their fighting forces uh, because God is going to be their strength. And he does not want them continuously counting and preparing and building around the idea of you know, how strong are we? What is our power? What are our numbers? Because God is their strength regardless of how big or how small they are. He wants them to focus on that. So you have to ask, like, why would God have them number them now? If, if later he's going to absolutely forbid it, and those of you that have studied your way through the scripture know that David actually violates that law, and he performs a census in order to number his military strength, and then a plague breaks out in the nation of Israel and begins to wipe the nation of Israel out. So if God is so opposed to it, why do it here? Well, unfortunately, the biggest reason that we're able to derive from the scripture that he does it right here is to show them how much their numbers diminish from this time period to when they finally enter the land. Right now, they've departed from Egypt, and they're a fairly short distance and a fairly short time from when that took place. And, and what's heartbreaking is it's at best an 11-day march across the wilderness to reach the promised land where they would have been at least you know, at the Jordan River and been able to cross. They spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness, almost like they're lost. It's interesting to me that the wilderness is known as the wilderness of sin and that the thing that occurs during this period of time is this entire generation dies. They all pass away. So now move forward to the New Testament and we're told <clears throat> that by Paul that all of these people that crossed through the Red Sea with Moses were baptized in Moses in crossing the Red Sea. And you can see uh, the symbolism there that as they went through the Red Sea, it symbolized being baptized, you know, immersed in the water, brought through the water from death and bondage of, you know, slavery in Egypt, sin, the symbol of departing from that life into the newness of life. But wander in the wilderness as the flesh dies. And then they come to a second river and have to cross it. If the first body of water symbolized baptism, according to Paul in the New Testament, then seemingly the second body of water crossing the Jordan River would symbolize also a baptism. When they cross the Jordan River, they have the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders. They have the priesthood 
in place. They have the symbols of worship with them. Second baptism, right? When we depart from our sin and enter the faith, the flesh has to die. Take up your cross daily, follow him, right? The flesh has to die. Second baptism in the Holy Spirit, into the newness of life, and into the victorious living as a Christian. If you have any questions about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Sunday evening service, we're right at 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and about to embark on 12, 13, and 14, which give us very detailed ex explanation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and how it's to be used in the church today. Not abused as it is in many quarters, but used properly. So if you're interested in that, you might want to show up on Sunday nights or at least listen online and get some information for yourself there. Here, they have just received the completion of of the Levitical law, and now they're going to be numbered to show them this is how many you are right now. When they come to the land and they're about to enter, they're numbered again. And the conclusion is you're less now than when we started. You've been diminished because of your rebellion. They come to that border and God says, go over and conquer your enemies. And they all come back and say, we can't do it. There's giants in the land. They're all going to kill us. And so, because of doubt, they wander in the wilderness. Because of doubt, faithlessness leads them to a destruction that they have to experience. Numbers chapter 1, verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month in the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt, saying, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel, by their families, by their fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. You and Aaron shall number them by their armies. <clears throat> now, here's another aspect of this which can be looked at in a positive light. <clears throat> I want you to number... The men who are capable of going to war, who are of age and of strength to go to war. The problem is, none of them are warriors currently. They're all slaves. They, they have no idea what it means to be fit and equipped for battle at all. All they know how to do is obey. They're given specific tasks, usually most of them for their whole lives, and they live in bondage to that task for their whole life. They have no idea how to fight. Oh, please put some you know, spiritual application to that. You know, how we are born enslaved to a particular thing. Your enslavement might be different than mine. You know, For years, mine was drugs and alcohol. Yours might have been success, education, and business. Something very contradictory to mine. But you were enslaved to it. You had to obey it. You had no choice. It woke you up every morning, kicked you in the butt, and sent you right out the door to go do that thing. <clears throat> it made you obey. Now that we're being delivered from that into Christ, we are being taught how to wage war, particularly against those wicked desires, against those sinful practices, against those thoughts that dominate our mind. 
So here I want you to number those that are capable of going to war. 17, if you drop right down there, says then Moses and Aaron took these men who had been mentioned by name and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month and they <clears throat> recited their ancestry by families by their father's houses according to the number of the names from 20 years old and above each one individually. Now, uh, the names do have significance, and uh, certainly every one of us that has surrendered our life to Christ is significant. You know, we're not just a great mass of people. Jesus Christ paid the price for you individually. And it is an absolute truth to say that if you were the only person that needed to have his sacrifice, he would have performed that sacrifice for you. You're that valuable in his eyes. It isn't a matter of value in regard to he looked at you and thought, oh, I've been waiting for this. This is exactly what I've needed and wanted all along the way. It's a matter of what he's capable of doing with you, what he's capable of creating out of you. Uh, I've shared uh, previously, I met a man years ago who collects cars, very wealthy, and uh, he does more than collect them. He, he takes them from their current state and brings them to, you know, a, a place of near perfection and, uh, you know, sells them, keeps them, trades them. It's When I say a collection of cars, he's got <clears throat> uh, two 1967 uh, Camaro fastbacks too. You know, one's got 11 miles on it. That one never gets driven. Uh, <clears throat> the other one was one that he found and restored, and he drives that one around because you don't want to drive the one with 11 miles, right? So, you know, <clears throat> and uh, you know, <clears throat> he's got a 268s, 269s, 270s. He's got a collection of Shelby Cobra uh, GTs. He's got a whole series of Mustangs. He's got a series of Corvettes. You know, two Dodge Vipers. You know, he's got some cars. <clears throat> so we're in this big, what used to be uh, a barn, and uh, we're walking along, and there's this rusted-out hulk of a Mustang sitting there. No engine block in it, no transmission in it. You know, it's, it used to be a convertible. The rag top's all rotted. The seats are just, you know, wire frames. There's nothing left of this car. It's just... A pile of rusted junk. And I say, wow, that in the middle of all this, that's pretty ridiculous. And he says, uh, what do you think I paid for that car? And I, you know, I, I mean, I'm in a collection room. I have no idea. So I, you know, stammer and stutter like the buffoon that just stuck his foot in his mouth and finally say something like $500. And he just laughed and says, I paid $5,000 for that. There were a thousand of them made originally. They were all built by Ford, by hand. There was no assembly line ever for them. And, uh, you know, aluminum block motor, that was taken out. He bought it and also went to the Ford Motor Company with the VIN number and got the book on that car. And he's in the process of buying every single piece and going to restore that car to perfection. He understands the value 
of what's involved with that. Jesus Christ paid for you, not based upon your current value, right? You're a ruined wreck of a human being. Christ has plans and can do incredible things with you and for you. If you're submitted to him, if you'll allow him to do the work, if you'll let him pull you out of the mire that you're in. So these names, they have a significance. In particular, each of these names have meaning. You know, any of us that have had kids, right? You start talking about family names. You start looking through the family, you know, books. You start looking through all the name books and trying to decide what are we going to name them. You know, there are a few names that are pretty much off the list, right? You know, you got a few names in mind from your history that you're like, we're never naming it one of these three names because of my history with people like that. Lucifer actually means son of the morning. That's pretty cool. You're not probably going to name your child Lucifer, nor Jezebel, right? There's a name from the scripture you're probably not going to use. Judas, not commonly given to children. There are some names and their meaning and their history that we aren't accustomed to using. These names have particular definitions, and it's quite interesting. So I'm just going to go through a little bit of it. As you look at the names of these men, verse 5, Eliezer is the first one. It means, my God is my rock. In verse 6, Shulamel, his name means a at peace with God. Verse 7, Nashon is a diviner, one who's capable of uh, understanding who God is. Nathaniel, in verse 8, means the gift of God. In verse 9, Eliab means my God is Father. In verse 10, Elishama means my God has heard or my God listens. Really significant names, and there's a story to be told if you follow through all of these. Then also in verse 10, Gamaliel means, my God is a rewarder. Verse 11, Biden means, my father is judge. In verse 12, Hazier means, brother of health. In verse 13, Pegiel means, event of God. In 14, Elisaph means God addeth. Now, the last guy, Ahir, have interesting combination here, which means brother, his brother, is evil. So apparently, he, you know, his brother was bad enough that, you know, I mean, it's bad enough if your parents ever say, why can't you be more like your brother? But, you know, if they actually name you your brother is evil. That's <laughs> just, I don't know. Your brother must be evil if the, if the next kid that is born, they name your brother is evil. So there's some significance to what's going on here, and I find God's humor in the midst of that. As you continue through the chapter in verse 21, you see those who were numbered of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. And I know you're just going to write this all down and keep track, but... You know, those who were numbered, verse 23 of the tribe of Simeon, were 59,300. And verse 25, those who were numbered of the tribe of Gad 
or 45,600, there's a significance, so bear with me. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. 29, those who were numbered of the tribe of Issachar were 54,400. In verse 31, those who were numbered of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,400. In verse 33, those who were numbered of the tribe of Ephraim were 40,500. Verse 35, those who were numbered of the tribe of Manasseh were 32,200. In verse 37, those who were numbered of the tribe of Benjamin were 35,400. Verse 39, those who were numbered of the tribe of Dan were 62,700. In verse 41, those who were numbered of the tribe of Asher were 41,500. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. And then when you get to verse 46, it says all who were numbered were 603,550. So the number is going to go down dramatically from there as we move through this process. Something that's uh, interesting to me is uh, you may have run into the discussions about the lost tribes of Israel. Uh, I just want to be very clear. There are no lost tribes of Israel. Right? Uh, the biggest promotion of that idea actually came with the European families of royalty. And they insisted that their right to rule over the rest of the people was because they were descendant from these tribes, that somehow the Israeli tribes had been scattered and pushed throughout Europe and that uh, you know they, they were the descendants. Uh, one of the clearest, as far as linguistics goes, is you know the Danish often insisted that they were descendants of Dan, and that's why we're the, you know the Danish uh, were you know descendants from Israel. Well, today we understand two things: genetics can be very easily studied, and none of them are descended from the nation of Israel at all. So that erases that. Secondly, there has been a process that was begun years ago in the nation of Israel, actually doing DNA tests on the graves of known Israelites that were inside the country when the nation returned, and then matching that to those who were insisting, I'm of the tribe of Dan, I'm of the tribe of Naphtali, I'm of the tribe, and they found that the, that the DNA markers are within those individuals. God has kept intact these tribes. They've been scattered throughout the whole world, but they've come back into the nation. Now, I understand that Israel has a pretty broad, open-door policy. They, you know, they don't do a lot of research. If you want to be an Israelite, you if you can go there and just say, my grandmother was descended from Israeli blood. They're just like, you're in. You have to renounce some things along the way, but they are allowing a massive influx. In particular, this is significant because we're going to read right here about the tribe of Levi, the priests. 
And those that claim to be of the tribe of Levi that want anything to do with the priesthood that they're trying to develop because the Temple Institute has all the articles to rebuild the temple. If they ever get permission, they're, they're ready to just fire that thing up in a moment's notice. Those people that say, I'm of the tribe of Levi, have to prove lineage. So this lineage that's recorded here is significant. It's significant that the Lord is telling them, we're going to number out these people and know who they are. So significant and interesting to me that God has protected and preserved for all of the effort to destroy the nation of Israel. God has protected them and preserved them. You read in the book of Revelation, and the Lord specifically says, right, we're going to have 144,000, 12,000 from each of the tribes that are chosen out by the Lord in order to serve him. And he names each of the tribes and says 12,000 from each one of these tribes. That means you're going to have to know that they're of those tribes. The Lord has protected and preserved them along the way. So we read verse 46, all who were numbered were 603,550. Verse 47, but the Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number, nor take a census of them among the children of Israel. But you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony, over all its furnishings, over all things that belong to it. They shall carry the tabernacle and all its furnishings. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. Then the tabernacle is to go forward. The Levites shall take it down. When the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levites shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone by his own camp, everyone by his own standard or flag, according to their armies. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony. So immediately surrounding the uh, tabernacle will be the Levites, that they may uh, be no that, that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel, and the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of testimony. So <laughs> while God here is saying no numbering, he's saying that in regard to war, because we're going to get a couple chapters into this, and God is going to count them and then compare that against the number of firstborn and say, you owe me, because the number of Levites doesn't match the number of firstborn. The, first, the tribe of, of Levi belongs to me as a whole, so you guys get to keep the rest of your tribes and the firstborn from the rest of the tribes. Your firstborn outnumber my tribe as a whole, so you're going to have to pay me the balance is what God does, showing the value that God places upon this tribe. He knows they're sinners. He knows that they're very flawed. The issue is, this is the group of people that are going to turn the whole nation's focus towards worshiping God. He knows they're sinful and flawed. He's not saying, oh, these Levites, they're special people. They're better than the rest of you. What he's saying is they are significant amongst all of you because they are the men and 
families, women, and children that are going to bring your attention to me. Nothing could be more significant for the nation of Israel. Verse 54, thus the children of Israel did according to all the Lord commanded Moses. So they did. Now in chapter 2, if you look right at verse 2, it says, every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. Again, that's the flag. Beside the emblems of their father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. And that actually became a very specific distance, but he's saying they're not going to encamp right up against it. So now you get uh, some explanation throughout the chapter, the color of the flag of these tribes. On the east side was green, uh, the total of the camp of Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun was 186,400 in their army. So now those are set forth first. They're the first ones to be assigned their position. And then on the south side of the tabernacle was uh, to be the tribe of Reuben, Simeon, and Gad. Uh, Their symbol, the ensign of their tribe, had the face of a man. Uh, The distinguishing color of the flag was red, And they were encamped on the south side of the tabernacle, a total of 151,450 in their armies. On the west side of the tabernacle was the tribe of Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. Uh, Their ensign had on it the head of a calf. The color of the flag was golden. The total number of the camp of Ephraim was 108,100. And then on the north side, the tribe of Dan, Asher, and Naphtali, their ensign was an eagle. The flag was red and white, and the total number of the tribe of Dan was 157,600. Now, uh, interestingly enough, given those numbers and the way that the tribes are to lay out in columns, they're supposed to set up in order to the north, set up in order to the south, And in the east and the west, they form a cross. How about that? Facing inward, looking at the tabernacle, all of them. They have the shortest number above, the largest number directly below, and nearly equal numbers left and right. They form a cross surrounding the tabernacle. That's just coincidence, though, you know. So interesting the way the Lord performs what he wants to say. So now these symbols, the ensign on each of their flags, as we said, the first of them was the lion, the face of a man, then the head of a calf, and then an eagle. That should bring to mind both the book of Ezekiel and the book of Revelation and what those prophets both saw there. And they... uh, scholars today point out, I'm not going to bog down in chasing a New Testament uh, study this morning, but I I hope I can inspire you to go and do some examination of those four symbols, uh, the lion, the face of man, the head of the calf, and the eagle, and uh, read the book of Ezekiel and uh, Revelation, see the symbolism there. But in particular, uh, the scholars have made note of how each one of the characteristics of these beings, you know, the lion and his strength, his prowess, his fighting skill, 
man in his weakness, his humility, and simultaneously his strength and being created in the image of God, the calf being a symbol of uh, servitude, you know, to, that it would be like an ox that would pull carts and carry loads and provide food and also be the sacrifice. Uh, the eagle, a symbol of the spirit, uh, you know, that which can fly and be above mankind and humanity. Uh, each of the Gospels is said to have these characteristics assigned to them. As you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, you see uh, the symbol of Jesus Christ descending from the tribe of Judea and his lineage. You see him being a humble man and uh, his weakness in the flesh and how he emptied himself of his godhood. And then you see how he came as the suffering servant. And then in the Gospel of John, you see uh, he being God and the deity that humbled himself in order to deliver man from his sin. So great symbolisms um, throughout the scripture and contained on the flags of each one of these gatherings of tribes. So uh, something worth taking the time to notice as you study them. As you continue through chapter 2, I told you we're just going to zing right along here. There are a number of uh, very interesting you know, accounts that you can get from chapter 2. But as you come to chapter 3, God had Moses set out the tribe of Levi into three major families. The family of Gershon, the family of Kohath, and the family of Merari. So the Levites were divided into three major family groups. And you drop right down to verse 10. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall attend to their priesthood. But the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now, I want to pause and uh, chase a rabbit here for just a minute because God has assigned these tribes uh, according to his purpose, and in particular the tribe of Levi, dividing them into these three segments is very significant. Uh, The trouble that comes up in the nation of Israel uh, as far as leadership goes occurs because this tribe in particular of Levi doesn't respect what God has laid out as the division. God has said, we're going to use this one family and we're going to divide them into the three portions and the three portions are going to have their assigned duties because they don't respect those assigned roles, we see tremendous difficulty in the nation of Israel. Uh, Those of you that have studied through are probably familiar with the rebellion of Korah, right? Uh, So the Kohathites make the decision that essentially God was wrong, that Aaron and Moses and his family aren't the only ones who are capable of serving as the high priest in that position. They're Levites too. Why can't they have a role in it? They actually make a power move and try to take over the priesthood in the process. It's interesting 
when you read through it because Moses comes to a place where he stands before them after the rebellion has become known, after the confrontation has taken place, and he announces to the entire camp of Israel, but in particular the tribe of Levi, and says anybody who is on God's side, come over here and stand with me. Now you think about how arrogant that is. If you want to be right, agree with me, right? That's only arrogant if you're wrong. He makes the statement that, no, this, this is what God has called us to. And if you want to see God's, those that rebel and choose, and he tells them, you're going to want to get away from those guys. Move away from them, literally. Those that don't, the ground opens up underneath the entire tribe. And the scripture says that they fell all the way into hell alive. Think about that. I can't imagine. I can't imagine falling into a pit to my death that way with my whole family. I can't imagine experiencing the fall. Period. My whole family, going, my whole tribe. I have led a group of people into, now we're going to rebel. Ground opens up. We all die in the process. Let alone, we're going to just fall this massive, unspeakable distance and enter hell whole. That's horrific. Last experience here, straight into hell. You want to, from this, understand God is very serious about the roles of spiritual leadership. Whenever I start teaching this, People go, oh, see, he's trying to make a point about himself. I'm trying to make a point about who God appoints as spiritual leadership. It's crazy to me to see what happens inside churches in power moves to try and take over. To see people not respect what God has put in place. I'm not talking about this church. I've watched it all my life. I watched it all my life and seen people, you know, uh, bitter and backbiting and, you know, gossiping and rumors and destruction is what's on the other end of the whole thing. Listen, massive failure, massive failure in Aaron's family, massive failure on the part of Moses, right? Huge, sinful, obvious problems. No, no one is saying, right? Moses shouldn't be the leader because he's a sinful man. God knew that when he chose Moses, right? Moses was already a murderer when God chose him. The point is, God anointed him to be the leader over the nation. When people try to rise up and usurp that authority, all through the scripture it's recorded. We we have uh, this struggle sometimes. You know, people come in and they start offering their opinions. You know, about different things. I had a, a man come to me last summer, and I didn't know there was anything wrong with our church, but he he was aware of it, and he marched straight up to me after the church and said, "You know what's wrong with your church?" And I said, "No, please tell me." And he said, "It's this whole Calvary Chapel model that you're following." This verse by verse thing 
that you're doing. That's what's wrong. You want your church to grow. You want your church to be successful. You need to abandon that and, you know, take a more modern approach and start doing, you know, I don't know what, topical or something. But, you know, doing verse by verse and just plowing through the Bible like that. And I said, wow, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. You know, a guy who's doing nothing in the ministry. This isn't like he's the pastor of a successful church and like come over to say, hey, we're being really successful over here. Can I lend you some wisdom? He just shows up here and decides you're all wrong and let me set you all straight. We do not follow even the American system of government in this church, in Calvary Chapel. We follow this system of government right here, the Mosaic system that God has raised up one person with a vision who the Lord then surrounds with a group of people to help fulfill that vision. And we do our best to carry that vision out into the community and the state and the country and the world as God gives us opportunity to do so. It's a really bad idea for God's people to start thinking like, where's the voting booth? Where do I get to put my opinion in here? It's, it's an unfortunate thing that people don't recognize that what God wants us to do is be involved with setting up the tabernacle and tearing down the tabernacle and moving the tabernacle and setting up the tabernacle and tearing down the tabernacle and moving the tabernacle and setting up the tabernacle. and tearing. That's what we're all supposed to be involved in. All of us. Putting the tabernacle at the center of our lives and constructing it, and moving it, and constructing it, and moving it to wherever the Lord gives us opportunity. I've had many people come and say, you know, you guys uh, support uh, missionaries, but have you considered supporting all of these missionaries? I say, how about this? 20.4 million people come to the state of Maine every single year. Okay? Eight Point three million people go to Acadia National Park and visit it every single year. That's more people that visit Acadia National Park than Disneyland every year. And they come from all over the world. You don't have to learn a new language and a new culture and go anywhere. Just go down to that island and open your mouth. Start sharing the gospel. Take the Bible tracts that we supply. Take the gospel of John that we provide and go share. That's what we need to do. We really need to do it. Right? We, you know, listen, guys. There are seminaries in South Africa that are sending missionaries to Southern California right now. That tells you the need of our nation. We, really solid, really solid Christian church, have been planted in one of the most prime locations to share the gospel with the world. Listen, I took a group of kids 
with Evan. We went to Europe, went to Hungary, ministered to the body of Christ there, back into Krakow, Poland, ministered there. I led a handful of people to Christ at that time. Just standing outside the old city of Krakow, playing worship music. People stop, walk up, talk to them. They're hearing things they've never heard before in their life. Before they're done, they're praying for salvation with me. I'm giving them, you know, whatever form of literature I can to go home and learn the gospel. Here's a name. Look it up on the internet. How hard is that? Okay, where do you live? And here's your, okay, and look, I found a Calvary Chapel that's five miles away from you. Go to this church. Equip them. Change their heart. Pray with them. Give them the tools. Send them back. We all need to be focused on this very mission right here. Does this have, you know, application for today? Absolutely this has application for today. Oliver and some other guys have started just doing this everywhere they go. Going down into Bar Harbor, going up into the park in Ellsworth, just walking up to people and just start talking to them and sharing with them the gospel. Was it Mormons the other day? You and Troy. You know, four Mormons, you know, right, right in the park in Ellsworth. Just share Christ. Just share Christ. You know, if, if you haven't noticed, I mean, we, we a lot of us celebrated the 4th of July yesterday. Did you see what the rest of the nation did? You know, burned a place to the ground, threw statues into the ocean, killed one another. We, we have the single message to save our culture. That's it. We, we, we are. We, th this, this family right here is the portal through which this entire nation is going to focus on the Lord. We are that family today. We are the family of God. We are the bride of Christ. Let us be the people who surround the tabernacle, right, and point people into the center of worship. Make sense? Easy enough application for you? Great. So, Aaron and uh, his sons, verse 10, they shall attend to the priesthood, but the outsider who comes near shall be put to death. Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn, I, I mentioned this before, who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine. Number the children of Levi, by their father's houses, by their families, you shall number every male from a month old and above. Remember how in all of the other tribes, he wanted them to be in that particular bracket of 20 to roughly 50 because he needs to know the fighting age. So for you guys, all you have to number is that group. Levites, the entire some of who they are. I want to know what their totals are. So instead of 20 years of age, like we said, they were to count the males from a month and above. God wants the total number. Now, as we said, the uh, family of Gershon uh, in uh, chapter 3, uh, the, the three divisions, uh, Gershon, Kohath, Merari, have uh, 7,500 Males, they were to encamp next to the tabernacle on the west side of the family of uh, Kohath. Uh, first of all, their job was uh, when they were to move would be the tent and the covering and the hangings of the doors 
the hangings of the court and the curtain of the door of the court, which is by the tabernacle all around about the cords of it. They were to carry these portions of the tabernacle. The next family of Kohath, and there's some discussion amongst the Israelites that the, the family lineage of Kohans, so so those who are Kohan in Israel, they say those are that that was actually a transliteration as uh, the Greek language affected the Hebrew language. So they say that the Kohans are in fact the Kohathites, and uh, there's some DNA evidence to support that also. So the the Kohathites, uh, they were uh, you know to be part of the priesthood and to pitch on the south side of the tabernacle. Their duty was to carry the ark, the table, the, the candlesticks, the altar, the vessels of the sanctuary, the, the hangings and the services uh, of them. Merari and verse 33 uh, came the family of the Mahalites and the family of the Mushites. They were the families of Merari. Those who were numbered according to the number of the males from a month old and above were 6,200. The leaders of the father's house of the families of Merari were Zuriel, the son of Abihel. These were to camp on the north side of the tabernacle, and the appointed duty of the children of Merari included the boards of the tabernacle, its bars, its pillars, its sockets, its utensils, all the work related to them, the pillars of the court, all around with their sockets, their pegs, and their cords. So, moreover, those who were to camp before the tabernacle of the east, before the tabernacle of meeting, were Moses, Aaron, his sons, keeping charge of the sanctuary to meet the needs of the children of Israel. Notice that, to meet the needs of the children of Israel. Not to be lords or kings or governors or possess or wield authority or you know, oppress, or they were to serve. Uh, when we talk about the uh, Moses model being our model for church, uh, I talk to other pastors, you know, they have a board of deacons and everybody gets to vote. And, you know, I described how the divisions and the difficulties, I, I've literally had conversations with pastors who lost their entire congregation over the color of carpet in their church. You know, and, and here's the thing, you know, this group of deacons is saying, no, the three choices you're given, we don't want anything to do with those at all. We need to go out and each of us will have our own committee and we'll research and we'll come back and tell you whether we're going to have a straight cut, a weave, a Berber, or whether it's going to be blue or black, or, and we'll, we'll tell you what our approval is. And when it's all done, the church has divided and splintered and everybody's gone off their separate directions over the color of the carpet in their church. That's a literal example. The first church division I saw as a child was a little Baptist church we were attending in Essex Junction, uh, Vermont, and uh, a group of women in the church uh, reading through Corinthians saw, oh, oh, women are only supposed to pray in the church when they have their heads covered. So they started wearing hats. And those that wouldn't wear hats with them became so contentious between one another that in the end, all the hat wearers, I saw this, literally, sat on one side of the church, all the non-hat wearers sat on the other until finally all the hat wearers left and went down the road and started another church. 
Somebody needed to, you remember the three stooges used to do that? Just line them right up and slap all the faces, you know what I'm saying? No? Too harsh? Well, in this tolerant world, maybe that is too harsh. I mean, you rewind the scriptures and you get back to Nehemiah, right? The nation of Israel has fallen into sin to the point where they're finally destroyed as a nation, captured as a nation, their cities are burned, they're driven away into captivity for 70 years, they're tormented as slaves, finally set free, they come back into the land, joy, they're rebuilding the walls and the tabernacle, and Nehemiah turns around, and they're already starting to marry the pagan wives from the surrounding nations. They're falling back into the idolatry that led them into slavery. Nehemiah calls them all in and it says he seized those men by the beard and he smote them in the face. Let's say it was with an open hand. What? And he ripped out their beards. I'm not going to be ripping anybody's beard out. But I think that the church has gone the way of the world and just wrings their hands over this whole issue of tolerance and softness. And we all need to just speak gently and quietly. There needs to be firm direction and correction given to the church so that nonsense, dividing over the carpet, you're going to shatter a church over the carpet, over hats. Yeah, I'm sure that's an issue the Lord's really concerned with. Ridiculous. That's why we don't have carpets. (laughs) The story's often been told about Chuck Smith and how the hippies were coming into the church and they were ruining the brand new carpets that had been laid down with their bare feet. They're walking around on the streets all day and on the beaches all day with their sweaty, oily feet, picking up all that filth and then come in on these beautiful carpets and just deposit all of that filth. And, you know, the board of selectmen and everyone present that was in leadership was all upset about, look at these brand new carpets, destroying them. And the story's been told that Chuck said they should rip out the carpets because what's more important, carpets or hippies? Chuck corrected that story just a couple years before he passed away, saw him in Maryland and said that it wasn't him. He was with the people who were upset about it. It was his wife that came to him and said, what's more important, the carpet or the hippies? And so they let the hippies stay and just started cleaning the carpet every week. Just serve them. Right? The idea of being a servant. See, these Levites are supposed to serve. Serve. Not lord over, not rule over, to serve. To serve. This design of church government isn't top down. That's how it's said. Oh, you got, you know, Will Cast at the top and he just, everybody's underneath him. It's supposed to be that I'm here serving everyone else. Moses is here serving everyone in the nation of Israel. These people are serving the rest of the nation of Israel. Jesus said to Peter, do not lord over those that you serve as the heathens do. You're going to have to have that singular position of authority 
that stops all of that bickering and fighting and just concisely says, this is the way it's going to be, but you don't then use that as some sort of bully totalitarian position. It needs to be singularity of leadership. If there's not singularity of leadership, division occurs. Right? If everybody's opinion matters, then we end up squabbling with one another. It needs to be that we're united together in a singular cause. It's very, very important. So each of these have their role. They camp to the east. Moses and Aaron keeping charge of the sanctuary and meet the needs of the children of Israel. But the outsider who came near was to be put to death. You cannot pass through to the tabernacle without the permission of these Levites. All who were numbered of the Levites, whom Moses and Aaron numbered at the commandment of the Lord by their families, all the males from the month old and above, were 22,000. So we get now the view of the camp of Israel uh, immediately to the west of the tabernacle. Camping next to it was the tribe, or were the tribes of Levi, uh, the family of Gershon. Then immediately to the south was the family of Kohan, the north, the family of Merari, and then to the right, in front of the entrance, the east side, was Moses and Aaron and his sons. So you see, if you were above this, looking down on the camp, it's kind of the view of the camp, as the tabernacle is right in the center of the tribe of Levi, and camped immediately around it, and the twelve tribes out around them, uh, each of the four points of the compass. So verse 40, Then the Lord said to Moses, Number all the firstborn males of the children of Israel from the month old and above, the firstborn, take the number of their names. So they numbered the firstborn throughout all of Israel. And there were 22,273. So God's basically saying, I'm short. On my count, I've got the Levi's, they belong to me, but you guys have the rest. And so there's a difference because of the 22,000. So he's short about 173. So he's going to say to the nation of Israel that they need to buy those firstborn. Because he, you know, effectively, according to the law that he set out for them, he could have taken from them and said, these from amongst your tribes need to come and serve here to assist the Levites in order to make our numbers equal. I get the tribe of Israel as my firstborn. They are signified as one, and you get all of your firstborn, but you have more firstborn than I have. So if you're going to keep them to yourself and not allow them to come in and serve here, which is the Lord is saying they must do that, then you're going to have to pay me for that, so he he sets out uh, the the number here. The firstborn twenty two thousand two hundred seventy three, only twenty two thousand of the Levites. So you owe me two hundred and seventy three. Charge the rate of five shekels of silver per, and they brought the silver and redeemed those two hundred and seventy three from the Lord and gave the money to Aaron, so that it would the money would go into the service of the Lord at the tabernacle. The the thing to notice in that is 
the value that the Lord places upon the tribe of Levi. Again, it, you know, it isn't a money issue for God. Uh, for us, anytime God asks us to take money out of our pocket, it becomes an issue, right? We, we have to weigh this all out. And God is saying, you owe me. So when they're having to take out their silver and pay the Lord, then they have to, the, the proper way of looking at that is for them to realize how valuable the worship is to God. Because all of these people are supposed to be providing for the nation of Israel so that they would worship God. So, so the whole point is to take the thing that's valuable to them and make them realize how valuable worship is. I'll draw the parallel right now. I, I, I mean, I've said endlessly that you know we as a nation putting in God we trust on our money is it's definitely become hypocrisy whether it was in the beginning that's a debatable issue but i mean we trust in money and materialism today we do not as a nation as a whole trust in god and and i think it's again obvious god this is this is god's judgment this is god's curse upon this nation he's he's punching us right in the wallet you know what i'm saying He's hitting us as hard as, as he can right where our idolatrous worship is focused to get our attention on, you know, look, the, the worship of me is the thing that needs to be central. Your hearts and your minds, you know, simultaneously, I, I started out this morning talking about the governor of California saying that they couldn't sing in churches. The attack that is upon Christianity right now is remarkable in this nation. If people don't recognize the hand of God shaking his people, trying to get their attention, yeah, right, sinful world outside our walls, you know, pandemic, how about the overwhelming epidemic of drug addiction, overdoses, and death in our nation that has eclipsed the number of dead from this current illness. You know, our, our nation, you know, the, the, the number of aborted children, think about all the different ways. Yeah, right. Our nation is sick beyond imagination. What needs to happen is those of us inside these four walls need to worship the Lord. We need to be the ones surrounding the tabernacle. We need to be that tribe of Levi that our, our tent doors are open facing directly to the tabernacle. That, that Every day starts with when you get up, you're looking at the Lord. Yeah, that's, that's, that's where your day, but you can't walk out the door and go to work without looking straight at the tabernacle. What does the New Testament tell us, right? The tabernacle is in us. We are the tabernacle of the Holy Spirit. We need to be people of sincere worship that are trying to lead people to worshiping the Lord with us. That we're drawing those outer circles into worshiping the Lord. You know, pointing them 
to Christ. You just do it constantly. Again, I want to encourage you to use, you know, your, I speak of Jesus all the time. Anywhere you can use phrases that belong to us, you know. My, my wife is especially good at that, just to be in line at the supermarket and, you know, somebody say something, oh, you got a coupon on this one. My wife will be like, praise God, you know, just, she's not that super weird Christian freak. She's just there to insert Jesus into the conversation, just to look for the occasion to see if somebody's going to want to talk to you. you know, to, to constantly be a child of God in every atmosphere that you're in in hopes that you'll draw people's attention to Christ and lead them into right worship. Does this make sense? Does, do you see the application of, of us being the people that have the tabernacle at the very center of our lives and the center of our community? Regardless of the madness that's going on in the tribes around us, right, as they're tearing down flags and putting up new flags, you know, getting rid of the godly symbols and putting up whatever symbol they're putting up next, we need to be in the center of that, drawing people's attention into right worship. That's just going to deliver them and us in the process. I pray to God that message sinks into your heart. You're able to take that out into the world, whatever your sphere of influence is, and share it with the people around you. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll pray. Father, we are, again, so grateful for your love and your grace in our lives, and we ask that you would minister to us. Fill us with your spirit. Help us to be the men and women who carry your message into a sick and dying world. Equip us for that work. Build that fire in our hearts and minds. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.